过年好。Hello and welcome to the Barbarian to the Gate podcast. This is Jeremiah Jenny, and we're broadcasting from Beijing. I'm here with my co-host David Moser. David, how you doing? Good, Jeremiah. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year, man. It is almost the end of the year of the Metal Rat. We are taping this a, a few days before the New Year, so there's always a chance of something catastrophic happening. But I think we'll survive. And of course, with the New Year comes inexorably, inevitably. The CCTV New Year's Gala, the Chunwan, which has been recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most watched television program in the world, and it's something whether you like to mock it, whether you watch it for some deep-seated political meaning that will give you the clue to the dissertation on political science in China that you really must write. It is a show that everybody talks about, and I've always been really curious about what goes on behind the scenes. And so today, we're really fortunate to have two. People who have been behind the scenes at the Chunwan, and they've been there as comedians. And one is, of course, my co-host. And you can always go on YouTube and find him on the CCTV Chunwan. Oh, please, no! <laughs> There'll be a link. Don't link to this. There will be a link. <laughs> and one of David's co-stars in the CCTV Chunwan is with us, direct from Canada, Mark Rosewell, aka the Not Small Hill Dashan. How you doing, Mark? I'm good, thanks. I I thought for a moment you were gonna say two people who've been on Chunwan. There's David and one guy who's very funny. <laughs> Sorry, that's David and I are old friends, so I'll start with a little dig. But now it's great to be on the podcast and get this chance to practice my English a little bit. Tell me about the skit that you two were in. This wasn't the first time, Mark, that you were on CCTV's Chunwan. It was like the second time, right? But this was the first time, David, you'd been on the Chunwan. It was like 1999. So if you'll if you'll indulge me, before we go on to talk about really important concepts of cross-cultural communication and comedy and the history of the performing arts in China, how did you guys get on the skit and how did that skit come to happen? Do you want to take a stab at that, David? It actually was uh, partly the result of uh, our teacher at that time, Ding Guangxuan, who was uh, the famous uh, crosstalk performer who has taken uh, maybe as as many as a hundred or more uh, foreign acolytes under his wing and, and taught them the the ropes uh, and you know got them on TV. Uh, he's he's gone. He's no longer with us now, and he's greatly missed. But he was the one who um, was. Uh, they went to him to find foreigners for a, a skit that they wanted to do for the for the New Year's. Festival. Yeah, I. I mean,、uh, for me, I think of it as、uh, it's really a formality that kind of show we did. I, I, I catch myself because it is. It is. You know,、uh, I don't think that the Chunman is actually a platform for comedy. It's not a comedic place, but it is a huge extravaganza. It's like you said. It's.、Uh, it's the biggest. It's the biggest show on earth in in some measurements,、uh, and. All of the power of state media, all media in China, are all focused on this one show. So if you can appear on that show, it is、uh, an affirmation and, and an honor. But it's not a show in which you can do much comedy, especially in the last decade. It really, in terms of the development of comedy in China, I, I often say that Chunwan has really become irrelevant. So I mean that that show we did,、uh, you know, as I look back over my career. I've done some good stuff and I've done some bad stuff, and the good stuff,、uh, as a general rule of thumb, has not been on Chunwan. <laughs>、um, that kind of show was very much a, our, our appearance was very much a formality, where it was really just trying to provide a little bit of international spice by having a couple of Chinese-speaking foreigners get on the show and basically say, "Give Chinese friends a hundred years." 
I mean, you know, happy, happy Chinese New Year to all of our Chinese friends on behalf of all foreign friends around the world. That's basically, that was the whole message. And that's nice. It's heartwarming. It's a holiday greeting and everything. It's not very funny. Uh, there's not much more content to it. It was just us kind of, you know, trying to find some funny way to say that. But really, basically, it was just saying, So I, I sometimes say, you know, we're, we sometimes complain about how time is to, so constricted on Chunban, right? You're like, you really need 10 or 12 minutes to do a proper skit, but they only give you four minutes. Well, I think in terms of that skit, we probably had three minutes too much because we could have done that in a minute. You know, we could have just gone on and said, oh. And that's basically the content of the skit. Well, the thing that I remember was that the, the original script actually had a few fairly decent jokes. I mean, there were, there was some funny stuff in it, but every time we went through the the uh, the usual uh, each pass, it had to go by the pass by the censors, and then they would make suggestions and take certain things out and add certain things. And we did that. I think it was four or four or five times. And by the time it went through all of those sort of whitewashings. There was nothing left at the end. <laughs> All of the jokes that originally uh, were thought of as kind of funny and edgy were gone. And in the end, it was just a contest between foreigners, four foreigners to say who loved China the most. <laughs> so that was why it, and some people called me up after the skit and said, I saw you on TV. Yours was the least funny skit of all. People often talk about, you know, the Oscars or uh, the the Super Super Bowl halftime show as kind of the Western equivalents of Chunwan. And of course, nothing is, nothing is an exact comparison but I think actually if you wanted to sort of take a couple of shows and 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 sort of throw them in to to represent what Chunwan represents as a mix you'd have to put the state of the union address in there because that's in terms of purpose that's really a lot of what where the show is coming from it's an annual celebration of everything that's good in China so it's it's a uh, it's a show that doesn't allow any negativity because it's a celebration of how great this last year was and how great and even greater the next year is going to be. You know, it's like every State of the Union address includes the phrase, you know, the State of the Union is strong. It's always strong. No president ever goes up and says, man, our union is really, really screwed. People just have to accept that. It's, a, it's, a, it's all about positivity, feeling good, feeling proud to be Chinese, proud of your culture, proud of your achievements, national achievements over the last few decades, and really a positive look towards the future. It's not simply a time to be entertained and to say funny things and, and, uh, and, and you know, song and dance. It's, it's very much a promotional event. If the Chunwan isn't really the best place, recently for comedy, looking back over since it began in 1983, when it began, I guess, as a comedy show, you can trace some elements of modern comedy as a performance art through some of these television specials. And I, I, we're really lucky to have you as a guest because you've been a part of that over your career as well. And I, I just, I know it's a really broad question, but I thought, what do you see as kind of the roots of modern Chinese humor? There's this weird idea that people aren't funny in China. And uh, anyone who spent any time uh, getting drunk in Beijing knows that people in Beijing and China can be wickedly funny. But in terms of performance art, where do you see as the roots of modern Chinese humor? And, and how did that kind of humor eventually evolve into some of this, the kind of performance arts that we see in the modern media or on the stage, things like Xiangsheng and, you know, the talk shows, as you, as it were, that you're doing yeah. now. To stick to Chunman for a second, it really did start out much more like Saturday Night Live in, the, I think the first one was 1983, and it was very much comedy driven. It was hosted and, you know, the, the comedians 
uh, sort of China's equivalent of stand-up comedians, these Xiangsheng performers were the heart and soul of the show. They were the hosts. They were performers. They were the th- they were the 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 uh, the attraction, right? There's there's uh, top-level pop singers and and uh, dancers, and there's speaking opera and everything rolled in together. But the show was really built around a core of comedy, and it was very much like Saturday Night Live in that. It was. You remember too. Looking back, this is this is sort of a, a an important point in the change of Chinese media, where in the early to mid '80s, television suddenly becomes the dominant media. So up until sort of 1982, 1983, media in China was heavily dominated by radio. This is sort of marking television coming of age and this big new show that's been developed uh, and it was funny and it was built around comedy and it was live. So in term, you know, in, like Saturday Night Live, some things worked and some things didn't. And it was a little bit rough around the edges, but people loved it. And as it's become more important, as it's become more, it's, I guess it's always been mainstream, but as it's become more official... It, of course, has become much more scripted, much more polished. And I think one of the problems with the show is that it is a live broadcast, but it's now rehearsed to the level where there's no sort of live element to it. Sure, it's actually being broadcast live, but everything has been scripted down literally to the syllable, to the second. By the time, you know, we appear on the show live, we've actually been through seven different full dress rehearsals that are recorded. So they actually have seven versions in the can anytime something goes wrong with the live broadcast boom it's a flip of a switch and what you actually see is the broadcast that we recorded yesterday or last week because we've been doing this now for three or four weeks you know it's sort of lost that spontaneity because it is such a huge hugely important sort of promotional event you know there's there there's no room for that kind of spontaneity that there used to be uh but it's uh i mean to take it back a step further it was very much driven by Xiangsheng performers who were the hosts and sort of the heart of the show. And it comes from a golden age of Xiangsheng, which is basically comic dialogue. It's, it's you know, boiled down to its fundamentals. It's straight man, funny man, comic dialogue. And there was a huge boom in this kind of humor in the post-cultural revolution era where all of a sudden satire is allowed again and they're making fun of the cultural revolution. We're making fun of anything that happened sort of the ni- through the 1980s. It's a very freewheeling kind of decade and, and uh, nowhere near the level of restriction that there is now. So comedy had a huge boom in the 1980s and, and Chunwan sort of is born out of that. As Xiangsheng has been sort of reined back, the role of Xiangsheng in Chunwan has become you know, minimal now. I think they sort of include one show because that's sort of the tradition. We have to have at least one Xiangsheng, but it's really, it's not built around Xiangsheng like it was in the, in the beginning. So that kind of brings us to the, to the, to the topic of Xiangsheng, if you wanted to explore that a little bit more. Everyone sort of knows the modern instantiation for it, but, but maybe you could just very quickly sort of trace the roots <clears throat> and how it sort of evolved into the modern form. And then we can talk about what you just talked about, the transition from, yeah. the, from the Mao era to the, to uh, the me the modern Geiger Kaifeng era. As we're now uh, starting the second year of this pandemic time, and uh, travel and live performing have, are still quite restricted. I, I, you know, I've I've spent much more of this last year, sort of looking into, looking back, and and um, studying a little bit more about the history and everything. I I think I would mention that really the expert on this is uh, is uh, Professor Chris Ray, who's a, a specialist in Chinese humor at the University of British Columbia. Maybe if you have him on the podcast sometime, he could really delve into the into the history of it more. There is a rich history of 
humor and comedy in China, it's recorded by librarians, basically. So, you know, there are these his, there are these joke books through Chinese history, but uh, they're not necessarily all that funny to read because they're just sort of, you know, very well scripted punchlines, but there's no, there's no sort of performance, no sort of delivery to them. There is a rich history of comedy and, and humor in China. Uh, Xiangsheng grows out of that. I think uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding of where Xiangsheng comes from, because what we now think of as Xiangsheng is really a tradition that was invented in the 1950s. It's when this sort of history of comedy and comic dialogue and everything was coalesced into this officially recognized and sponsored and, and promoted form of comic dialogue called Xiangsheng. People talk about it having a history of hundreds or even, you know, a longer, longer period. But really, it's the 1950s where it's codified and it kind of becomes a state-sponsored form of comedy and has a huge boom through the 50s and early 60s, is wiped out during the Cultural Revolution. And then, like I said before, it's, it has this another boom sort of in the late 70s, early 80s. When I say it's state-sponsored, I mean, that sounds like the death knell to comedy. Like, what kind of comedy could be funny if it was actually state-sponsored? But I, I think that's sort of misunderstanding the decade of the 50s, uh, where Xiangsheng really has its heyday. It, it moves from sort of being street buskers and this very lowbrow kind of um, marketplace humor and it moves into theaters and into radio, the dominant media of the time, and it becomes this sort of official, officially recognized form of comedy that is widely popular across China and is really used to sort of promote a lot of the themes that they wanted to promote. A lot of the Xiangsheng of the 50s, for instance, was really to promote you know, standardized language, Putonghua, promote these new policies like the marriage law, to break through superstition, things like that. It's, it's, it, and, you know, maybe it sounds a little bit naive to us looking back now in a historical perspective. But at the time, this stuff was hugely popular in the in the mid to late 50s. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the figure of Hou Baolin, who was the, uh, the person that was put in charge of taking this sort of rowdy body sort of art form and clean, cleaning it up so that it could be used as a tool of propaganda in the, in the 50s. And he, I would say, you know, well into the 80s was thought of as being synonymous with the art form, sort of the, the, the major practitioner. And to this day, if you take a Beijing taxi, you can still hear Hou Baolin's Xiangsheng on the radio. So, um, you know, his, his uh, presence looms uh, very large. You know, be, being a, an art form that was used by the, by the state as a propaganda mechanism as well as an entertainment mechanism, it had to always have this tension in it that the Xiangsheng performers and, and the people who wrote the pieces referred to this, this dichotomy between feng si and ge song. Feng si meaning satire and ge song meaning to praise. So the Xiangsheng performances, just as it was in the Chunwan, had to both somehow be funny, which means they had to make fun of something, but at the same time, they also had to praise the progress that the state was making. And that tension was always there because it's very hard to be funny while praising something. I mean, you've always got to have a target for the humor. And it wasn't an ap until after the, uh, the Cultural Revolution ended, and for a brief time, those those the gang of four and the excesses of the Cultural Revolution era were fair game for satire. So the Xiangsheng yeah, performers yeah. suddenly found that they had a, a uh, officially sanctioned target for the humor. And those early pieces were kind of transformative. And a lot of Ho Baolin's disciples made their name in that era because they could actually be funny for the first time making fun of, the, uh, of that era and of the people, the villains uh, who had just uh, wrought their, you know, this destruction on the country. Wasn't there a famous or a, a really famous Xiangsheng skit, I guess that's what they're called, 
from the 1950s that was a take on Rip Van Winkle? Yeah, it was called Zotian, and it was a propaganda piece, but it was it was actually quite genuinely popular, and I think it's still, you can see it on YouTube. Zotian means yesterday, and the premise is uh, this... Uh, this uh, gentleman uh, had had an accident and fallen into a coma pre-1949, pre-liberation, and didn't wake up until sometime in the middle of the 1950s in a, in a hospital. And he looks around and he asks these naive questions that were based upon his understanding of China pre-liberation, like uh, he's saying, well, well, you know, how's the grain shortage? Or who's going to pay for this hospital bill that I have? And they would laugh at him and say, oh, no, that was pre-1949. Now nobody pays their hospital bill. You know, and it was all making fun of this man who had this, these outmoded notions about what China was. And now the, the, the new China that was, uh, uh, you know, that everyone had was equal and had prosperity was on the rise. So this was typical of the kind of 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 both feng si and ge song, the satire and praise were there in the same piece and it was quite successful. So there is uh there are these underlying tensions in Xiangsheng and that's certainly one of the core ones there the, the uh, satire versus praise and you know when we come back to Chunman of today not only is satire severely restricted but in this particular show because it's a promotional show there's no sort of negative energy allowed whatsoever. So that's why you wouldn't have any kind of satire in a in a Chunman piece. Um, if we look at the, you know, what I think of as the two golden ages of Xiangsheng in in the, in the past uh, century, I suppose, uh, the first one is really the 1950s, and then the second one would be the late 70s, early 80s. Both of these are historical periods that come after a period of political turmoil, and all of a sudden, everything that happened before the switch is open game. So in the 1950s, you could say any you, any kind of satire, as long as it was directed at pre-1949 China, and, you know, that's all fresh memories to people. The same thing in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution and the Gang of Four were open game. And so there's this huge explosion in satire. You know, there's also the need to sort of put a positive spin on it. That's where the gusong comes. I think that another, another level of tension in Xiangsheng that I've found too is that there, there is this tension between, you know, being a positive force, you know, using comedy as a force for good and uh, being that zheng neng liang, the positive feeling and everything. But of course, a, a central role of comedy is to be kind of disrespectful and to be rebellious. There's a rebellious nature to comedy, right? It's not a straightforward look at the world. It's crooked. This uh, Comedy always has to be crooked in some way. And there is one of the reasons people like the modern stand-up comedy in China so much is that they see it as kind of a, you know, part of this cat and mouse game against the state, right? There's that satire, there's that sort of dirty underbelly to it that people just really, really crave. And that's a tension that we see very prominently in Xiangsheng. You've got this sort of official state-sanctioned Xiangsheng, and you've got sort of the underground, now kind of represented by Guo Degang, right? This sort of back-to-basics, we're telling the dirty jokes again. People want to hear dirty jokes. You know, they want something with a little bit of edge, they want something with a little bit of satire, and people love that, except for that stuff doesn't get onto state TV very well. So there, there's there's still that kind of tension between the Gusong and the Feng Si, and also between, you know, the what Hobalin represents, the very erudite, educated culture and sort of the lowbrow sex jokes that a lot of people still just, you know, there's a huge market for that. I guess we could say at this point too, Mark, that you're also a part of this history in some way. 
And I, I was wondering, you, you learned Xiangsheng in the 1980s in coming out of this sort of high water or one of these high water marks for the art form into the 1990s. And in the 1990s, as you mentioned, you have Guadagang and other influences coming in that are edgier, perhaps a little bit less mainstream. Can you talk a little bit about how Xiangsheng changed in the 1990s? So I did come in, I mean, in hindsight, in 2020 hindsight, I did come into the into Xiangsheng sort of at a peak of the art form. And that left a very deep impression on me because the kind of stuff that I saw as a student in 1988, 89, and even through the 90s, I mean, you're looking back, you're buying tapes and everything, you're listening to stuff that might be two or three or four years old, stuff from the 80s, you know, that was great stuff. And I was meeting these people, they was this, you know, this was all very real to me because these are you know, the younger performers like Feng Gong and Niu Chun and everything were, were, the, were the cat's meow at that time. And Jiang Kun was at the peak of his game. And uh, Hou Yao Wen, who's the son of Hou Baolin, you know, these were all top-level performers in the 1980s, and I got to know them personally. And people started to talk about Xianzai Xiangsheng Bu Jing Qi, right? It's not, uh, it's on the decline. It's, Xiangsheng uh, uh, is in crisis. And there's sort of a rise of uh, Xiaopin, which is basically sketch comedy. So instead of getting up in the straight man, funny man format, people were doing these sort of short sort of Saturday Night Live kind of sketches. And that became much more uh, popular through the 1990s. As there were more restrictions on Xiangsheng, there was less room for satire. You know, I, I'd been in sort of the business for a couple of years and I was sort of the new thing, right? I was the I was the young guy that the the new flavor of the month and, you know, enjoying my my moment in the sun. And after a couple of years I started to realize, you know, there hasn't been anything really new happened to Xiangsheng since Dashan. Like I was kind of the new thing in 1988, 89. Now it's like 1994, 95, 96. Like where, where is the next new thing? And that's when I started to realize, yeah, you know, Xiangsheng is kind of losing that vitality. Like where's the, where's the next new thing? Uh, and I started to realize, well, maybe actually the appearance of Dashan marks the decline of Xiangsheng. I mean, I, I, I am the decline. <laughs> I personify the decline of Xiangsheng. It's like, this is really sad. And, maybe, and maybe before you go on, say a little bit why you were sort of uh, di disillusioned or, or were you disappointed in the way that Dashan, the image of Dashan, was promoted in Xiangsheng? Well, that's not so much with restriction on satire because I think as, uh, you know, as a foreigner and as a guest in the country, there's, and I think this is universal for any country, there's much more, you know, satire is something that people inflict on themselves. Uh, or from an outsider in a friendly way, but when an, when an outside performer becomes unfriendly, I mean, I, I could raise all kinds of examples in the States too, like Americans will make all kinds of fun of themselves, but you know, when Brits or Canadians do it, it gets very sensitive. So it's not so much that there was a restriction on satire with Dashan, it's more that I was stuck in this sort of foreign pupil Chinese mentor kind of role, which is fine when you are a foreign student, because I was playing myself, but you know, after after seven, eight years or a decade of being the foreign student, after doing this stuff for a decade, you do develop and you 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 get better and you 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 have your own ideas that you want to express. And it's very I found it very difficult to do that in this straitjacket of being the perfect foreign student 
with the Chinese teacher and always getting the better of my teacher. That was sort of always our comedic shtick, right? That the Chinese teacher was going to teach me the glories of Chinese culture and civilization. And as we got into this dialogue, the tables were always turned and he became, you know, it turned out that he didn't understand Chinese culture as well as I did and that his Chinese wasn't as good as I as mine was. So it was always that sort of comedic flip-flop that was that was funny. And after a while, I, I got, I did get tired of being, first of all, always being the pupil, but always being perfect too, because perfection is not funny, right? So I, uh, I mean, to make a long story short, I, what I, what I eventually did is I moved away from comedy for many years and just got into sort of cultural work. And when I did sort of after 2012, 2013, move back into comedy, I did it much more in this sort of solo stand-up comedy kind of format, where instead of turning the tables on my teacher, I was turning the tables on my own public image and I was making fun of myself. And I actually found that much easier to do and much more liberating to try, uh, rather than try to be this perfect character, to actually sort of come out and say, oh, there's this perfect public image, but let me tell you the real story and kind of take the, take the piss out of Dash and myself. So that's that's sort of where I broke out of a of a comedic straitjacket. But I think you know to come back to that point about you know where is Xiangsheng going? Like I'm the I'm the new big thing, and then five six years down the road, like where's the next new big thing? Well, in hindsight, I think that question was really answered with the emergence of Guo Degang, who's not necessarily a generation younger than me. I mean, he's he's actually in the Xiangsheng hierarchy. He's he's. Uh, He's actually considered superior to my level, right? He's a, he's a generation above me. But he did become popular sort of in the late 90s, which is a good seven, eight years after sort of this, you know, the big splash of Dashan. And what he represents is very much that Xiangsheng returning to its countercultural roots. So returning to theaters, returning to street, returning to the people, rather than being this sort of very proper, educated, erudite, educational humor he went back to the tea houses and to the small performances and, and you know, through a traditional kind of format, really brought the thing back to what we call the xiao shimin, you know, the, 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 the ordinary people kind of level, a lowbrow, um, he was, a little bit vulgar. He was uh, censured, not censored, but maybe censured because of what they call the three vulgarities, sensu, yeah. uh, meisu, disu, disu, yonsu, yonsu, and uh, meisu or something. Meisu, yeah. Yeah. Those, but basically, yeah, lowbrow and vulgar. Lowbrow and, yeah. And he, he was actually taken off uh, the, the airwaves for a, for a time because of just what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I mentioned him as a counterculture kind of figure because another one that we can talk about who's not Xiangsheng, but more of a Shanghai style, uh, is Jolie Bo. And both of them come not like Dashan through exposure on huge mass media state television programs, but they actually become popular through the late 90s and, and the early knots through doing theater performances that are then recorded and somehow the recording gets out and it's bootlegged and it's sold, you know, every marketplace used to be full of these sort of bootleg VCDs, which is for the young people, that's one generation before DVD. That's the, the sort of the first generation of digital disc was VCD, very low, low resolution, crappy, but cheap uh, discs that were sold throughout markets it's, and, and later became DVDs. Godegang and Jolibo both come become popular through these channels, not through official state media channels. It's only later because they're popular or hugely recognized across the country, then there's sort of pressure to bring them into the system. And as they're brought into the system, there is this tension because they do represent 
you know, something that's a little bit uh, raunchier than than what state media is used to. And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, Guo uh, Degang, I do, I do admire him for the work that he's done. But, you know, when he comes into that state media system, he bombs like everybody else. Like he, he's very good at standing outside of the system and throwing, lobbing, you know, grenades into the sort of state media. And people love that, right? That sort of, that sort of anti-establishment kind of ethos that he, he represents. But when he actually has a chance to appear on these big state media programs, he's just as bad as the rest of us. You know? <laughs> so, um, so there is that tension in in Xiangshan that I find really interesting. You know, I mean, like the stuff that I do live when I go and perform in a theater or I actually do shows in you know universities or something live, I'm doing all kinds of stuff that wouldn't be allowed on TV, and people love it. And you have to learn how to you know neng shang neng xia. That's kind of a that's kind of a trick for for comedians now to know what to do in this environment and what to do in that environment and to balance the two. So we uh, caught up to the, the the melding or the sort of the era of the early 21st century when Xiangsheng begins to uh, have the competition and, and sort of goes into the fray with all these new forms of humor, lots of different foreign uh, foreign forms, lots of movies, explosion of, of digital media and, of course, the internet. Audiences were being exposed to all kinds of humor forms that they didn't have access to before. You want to talk about this new comedic environment now where we have, in Chinese, they call it toko xiu, which is just a literal translation of talk show, but is really what we would call stand-up comedy. And there seems to be quite a, a heady mix now of different kinds of, of you know, uh, stand-up humor and uh, situational humor. Uh, also, this sort of ugao, this sort of comedic videos that that were had a heyday. So there is, I mean, we talked about the tension between feng si, satire, and ge song, the, the praise. I think there's also a tr- there's also a tension, and this is something that's very Chinese. I think there's lots of things about comedy in China that are actually quite universal, but this this is something that's particularly Chinese, in that there's a tension between tradition and creativity, right? So there, so a lot of Xiangshang has really focused on the tradition of Xiangshang and trying and trying to represent traditional culture, and that is, I think, is kind of dangerous for Xiangshang because, of course, being new and creative and relevant is much funnier than being traditional. You know, that's kind of a trap that Xiangshan has fallen into, is trying to be the, the repository of Chinese culture. And often when there are restrictions on Xiangshan, you know, on terms of what you can do now, how, how creative and how sort of you can push the envelope now, the natural reaction of Xiangsheng performers, and myself included, is to move back into tradition because tradition is a safe space. We can, we can be erudite, we can, uh, we can do language jokes, we can, we can talk about traditional culture. That's kind of a safe space that, that Xiangsheng retreats into. Unfortunately, that kind of safe space is not as funny as being edgy and current and new. And that's where, these, that's where Xiangsheng starts to lose out to these forms like Xiaopin, sketch comedy in the 1990s, but also Tokoshu and these things that are much more popular now. And, you know, I, through my own sort of Dash and Live show, I try to bridge that gap. I go back and forth. But I think the appeal of Tokoshu, which of course is a bad translation of talk show, there's a, first of all, there's a, there's a huge misunderstanding here in that talk show in a Western or an English context, doesn't mean one man stand-up comedy, right? A talk show is a dialogue between a host and a guest. You never, there's no such thing as a solo talk show. You don't. You know, that's a monologue, right? And there's a lot of misunderstanding because, of course, a lot of talk shows do begin with a monologue by a comedian. 
So there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion, I think, between what the talk show to me represents that part where the host sits down and has a dialogue with a guest. That's the talk show. The opening monologue is stand up comedy. Well, stand up comedy is called tokoshou in Chinese. Those people people think of talk show as being a one man or one person, a comedic monologue, and that's a form that's become hugely popular in China now. I think largely because first of all, it's new and fresh, and young audiences. Comedy is always a young person's business, and young audiences want something that's new and fresh and close to their own life experience. They don't want to hear about. Traditional culture, right? They want to hear about boyfriend girlfriend issues, you know, things that are really like real to them. It also, because it's a solo performance, it this is something that I mentioned that really appealed to me. I found myself straightjacketed into this role of the foreign student with a Chinese teacher, and it didn't matter if the teacher was twenty years younger than me. I was still the foreigner performing a Chinese art form with a Chinese person. They were always the teacher. And it was always ah, Let me give you a test. <laughs> you know, You know, sort of always testing me on my Chinese knowledge. I found that to be a straitjacket. I think Chinese performers as well, especially younger performers, find that kind of comedic dialogue a straitjacket. And tokoshou, or these solo performances, allows them to express their individuality, which is a huge sort of social and cultural development in modern China. There's this huge, strong collective identity, collective culture, but people, after all, still are individuals, and that sort. There's a rise of individualism in China that I think is reflected through Tokoshou. What's the difference when you're not only as a performer but as a writer? When you're crafting a sketch, when you're crafting a monologue, what's the difference between preparing for Xiangxiang and preparing for the stand-up? And the other question I would have too is now that you're performing Dashan live, not just for a, a Chinese audience in the mainland, but you're performing this all over the world, which is a great opportunity. But is there any difference in how you write for a Chinese diaspora audience versus, say, an audience uh, when you're performing inside of China? Xiangxiang, um, you know, I mentioned a few traps that I feel that Xiangxiang has fallen into, and one of them I think is sort of a formality. There's very much a there's, there's very much an expected format of Xiangxiang. So for instance, and this again is something that has actually changed or moved backwards, I think, in the, in the 25, 30 years that I've been involved with Xiangxiang, is that in the 1980s, we very rarely wore those long gowns, the long Mandarin gowns. That was something that represented the tradition. But Xiangxiang of the 1980s was very much about Right? It was about reform and opening. It was about things that are happening here and now in the 1980s. That's really where performers like Jiang Kun, uh, Feng Gong, Niu Chun, the, the big stars of the 1980s, they were, stuff, they were talking about comedy that's here and now. And they were wearing regular garb because that's you're trying to create a connection with the audience. I mean, as a foreigner, that's really the core of what I found interesting about the art form is that you're trying to... You, it's not sort of like slapstick or kind of a more lowbrow humor where you're getting up on stage and just playing the clown, being funny. You're actually trying to create a rapport with the audience. You're trying to sort of get into their headspace and create a connection. And as a foreigner, I found that a real challenge, right? But also extremely rewarding when you're able to go in that and share something together, right? You're breaking through that cultural barrier. Xiangxiang is very much hung up on this formality that, you know, we have to wear this gown and we have to have this table and we have to hold a fan. And, uh, and, and the whole dialogue has to be, fit, you know, fit into this 
format. You have to have a pungan and you have to have a dogan, right? The the straight man, funny man roles are very strictly defined. And there's kind of a format that people expect out of it. You can tell like when people imitate what it what it's like to perform xiangsheng, they often sort of, their back gets very straight and they suddenly take on these airs, right? And they start to talk in this sort of exaggerated voice. And that's kind of what I think Xiangsheng shouldn't represent, but it does. It's just formality. And Tokosho is very informal. I, I, I think another thing about Xiangsheng, we often talk like in the in the creation or writing of Xiangsheng, they talk about Shenru Shenghua, right? You have to get deep into into life. You have to go and experience life and then bring that, those that what you've learned, bring that into your composition. But if you look in practical terms, what does Shenru Shenghua mean? It means to go and experience someone else's life. It means that if you're an educated youth, you go to the countryside, you go to the factories, you learn what quote unquote ordinary people are like, and you try to get past your own sort of urban elite background and connect with the masses. That's what Shenru Shenghua means. Well, stand-up comedy is not so much about learning about other people's life. It's getting up on stage and sharing your life with people and trying to find a connection that way. So, you know, when you complain about things that are happening or, you know, things that have happened to you, you're trying to create that connection where the audience says, oh, yeah, that, that kind of happens to me too, right? It's, it's a very different way of creating a connection. You're not creating a connection by trying to be, trying to pretend you're someone other than who you are. And that's very much what Xiangsheng does. It's like, you know, I, go, I do this skit and I'm pretending that I'm a factory worker in, involved in this dialogue. I think in terms of creation, that's, that's a big difference. For me, I mean, traveling around, I, I do this last decade or so, I focus much more on performing around the world because I just, I really enjoy travel. Uh, but it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a farce because, <laughs> I mean, I, I'll go and perform to an, like I literally went to Buenos Aires to do a performance, but the people you're performing to are people that have been in Argentina less than 20 years. They've emigrated from China. They grew up watching you on television. <laughs> they are the CCTV audience, you know. <laughs> And they're, now they're living in Buenos Aires. And I'm thinking, this is great. You know, <laughs> I travel the world, but I'm performing to the same audience. Um, there's a bit more of a visceral connection because, you know, for me, the challenge of performing in China is as someone who has such a huge different, different background, how do I create a connection with these people? Like, how do I find commonalities with them? It's much easier to find commonality with overseas Chinese because, of course, we all experience this life of living in a different culture of, you know, in our daily life, having to speak a different language, having to deal with people that don't know a lot about where we came from and our culture and everything. You're always the outsider. You're the other. So when I, you know, people who grew up in China watched me on CCTV and saw me as this you know, foreigner who speaks really good Chinese and he really understands China and everything. And then they immigrate abroad and they have their own foreign student experience. And, you know, maybe they're in an interracial marriage or they're leaving they're living in society where they're no longer the cultural mainstream. They're, they're, they're the, the immigrant living in, in a multicultural or a, a, a different society. Um, there's much more of a connection that way, actually, where they, I, I get this reaction a lot from audiences abroad saying, you know, I, you know, I loved your stuff when I was growing up, but it's really after living for, you know, eight years in Texas, I kind of really appreciate it now. <laughs> You know, I got a I got a really touching letter uh, this about a week ago from um, I, I mentioned Texas because she was from somewhere in Texas I forget and she said you know I had to explain to my husband why I was watching your video on YouTube and I suddenly started to cry. 
you know, I broke into tears and all this, this like, I just brought back so many memories. And I just suddenly realized, you know, I had this childhood impression of Dashan. And now that I've been living in Texas, I have like a whole new appreciation for what it means to live in a different culture. And for me, you know, that, that I found that letter really touching because that's, that's what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to reach out and touch someone through comedy. You're not just getting up and sort of banging your face with a frying pan and say, you know, look at how funny it is. I just banged my face with a frying pan. You're, you're trying to establish a connection. That's touching. It shows that Jeremiah just said, you're, we usually talk to people who are, who are writing or lecturing about Chinese history. You're a part of Chinese history and you're a part of the, uh, these people's lives, the history of their lives. So I can see why they would, would be emotionally moved by, by you in person. Uh, that's what I try to do. I mean, I, I, I don't really think I'm, I, I'm a China watcher in a certain sense, but I, I try to be a China doer. I mean, I, I do sort of feel, and, and now, of course, I'm dealing with colleagues and perfor- other performers and audiences that are quite a bit younger than me. And a lot of people that grew, literally grew up or were even born after my first appearances on television. And now all of a sudden I'm the I'm Dashan Lao Shu, right? I'm the I'm the senior performer, and people look to me as the repository of tradition. Like I know more about traditional Xiangsheng than than most audiences do. So now I'm like the repository of this traditional culture, which I I think is really funny. You know, although I I jump around to say we look at Hobalin, some of the great stuff he did. He's he's still considered unsurpassed master of Xiangsheng, and uh, I got to know him a little bit uh, before he died in 1993. Uh, one of his most popular performances he did, one of the classics that's considered a classic of traditional Xiangsheng performance is actually from a Western joke book that he was reading in the 1940s. And he got this, you know, this kind of thing was very popular. This is something that Chris Ray really covers in his book, um, The Age of Irreverence, which really talks about comedy in the Republican period, especially the huge boom of comedy in the 1930s and 40s, which then was replaced by Xiangsheng in the 1950s. But, you know, these foreign joke books were hugely popular in China, in, Re- in Republican-era China. Charlie Chaplin movies, all of this sort of foreign comedy was being consumed in China. Ho Bolin took something, apparently it was from a French joke book about two drunk guys boasting about, you know, uh, part of the joke is, you know, they're, 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 their boasts become so outrageous. One of them says, you know, if you're so, you know, you're such a know-it-all and you can do everything here, why don't I, you know, here's my flashlight. I'll turn the flashlight on. Why don't you climb up the beam of light? Uh, And the ending is, yeah, you know, you can't fool me. I know, you know, I can do it, of course. I'll climb up the beam of light, but I'll get up and, you know, you'll turn the light off and like I'll wipe out. There's no way I'm falling for that trick. And again, it it doesn't sound so funny when you just boil it down to the punchline, but it's, it's a huge, you know, it's a, it's a four or five minute performance that really, that really brings you into that comedy well it's a foreign joke it's a western you know that and that kind of shows you know what is the difference is there really a different chinese sense of humor is it is it something that's totally distinct or is there sort of a shared humanity of culture of of humor with sort of different packaging and different languages different cultural referent different different cultural referent, uh, references but there's that shared sense of humor and that's that's what I try to explore and I often use that Hobalin example as something you know you think it's traditional Chinese culture but actually that's a western joke that's a great example it sort of brings to mind something that we were just talking about recently which is uh, a, the sort of new thing in the Toko show is is this tu cao da hui kind of thing which is insult humor yeah. which uh, you yeah. and I know and Jeremiah knows that this this sort of bantering <clears throat> insult to humor is very much a part and parcel of all Chinese parties and 
you know, late, late night bar sessions. People love to insult each other, but it was not something that usually was on TV or, or on the the Chunwan or something like that. And no. there's this woman now. And it, there, there, and it couldn't be. It couldn't be. Even now, it doesn't matter how popular it gets, it'll never be on Chunwan. It'll never be on Chunwan, <laughs> right. But there's this woman uh, named Yang Li who's uh, made a name for herself recently uh, getting on this uh, Toko show and, and making fun of the of uh, male egos, <laughs> sort of poking fun at how yeah. men are f- so full of themselves. And it was evidently, you know, controversial. But this is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, as you said, this is universal. People do this all the time in daily life, but now it's on TV or now it's on the media and people see it as, yeah. uh, you know, a foreign thing, which really is a Chinese thing. It is. I mean, in a foreign context, of course, Don Rickles is the grandfather of, of insult humor, right? The guy just never said anything nice in his entire life, but he was one of the f- most funniest comedians ever. And now, of course, there's the, uh, in stand-up comedy, there's that part of stand-up comedy, which is the roast, which is you just get up and you just shit on everybody. Uh, and it's, it's funny. It's very cathartic, right? I mean, a big part of comedy is sort of saying the, the things we're not supposed to say in polite society. That's I think that's universal to comedy. In in the Chinese context, we call that da shi hua bao fu, like the you know shi hua. That's that's the truth, the the big truth. It's the kind of truth that you never say on stage. That kind of humor actually has greater resonance in China because there are more taboos in China. It's easier to break taboos in China. It's easier to get a laugh just by saying something honest. You know, a lot of humor there is that there is that rebellious side of humor that likes to take down. To take people down a step. There is a kind of a controversy in Chinese comedy where, you know, this whole idea of that comedy should punch up, not punch down. You don't make fun of, you know, disabilities or disadvantaged people because that's that's cheap humor. You know, it's something we still do, right? That's sort of the tradition of a lot of comedy, of slapstick, lowbrow humor is making fun of disadvantaged people. And you still see that in Chinese comedy. But, you know, in the, in the example that you, you raised of Yang Li, she is punching up. She's a young woman making fun of the patriarchy. And, of course, the patriarchy is pissed about it. I, you know, I think they're very fragile egos. <laughs> the, stuff, <clears throat> the kind of stuff she's doing is very mild. You know, she's talking about how men are sort of full of themselves and they sort of, they have a huge, greatly inflated view of themselves. And, you know, that's a great setup for humor right there. And uh, the fact that a lot of men are offended by it sort of proves their point, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that that's something I think is kind of universal to comedy. And certainly it's not foreign to China, but it is something, you know, because there's this tension between officially sanctioned humor, the positive sort of building a better society kind of humor, and the kind of lowbrow humor that people love, you know, taking uh, establishment figures down a peg. That's a, that's, a, that's a universal thing of comedy. And it's, it sort of walks a tightrope in China where people love it, but uh, whether or not it's acceptable is a, is a debate. So, Mark, what are you, it's been a strange year for performing in general. I'm sure it's affected you as it's affected anyone who makes their living being funny in front of an audience how have you made the best of this year and what are you getting ready to do in the coming year of the ox? So I guess to step back a moment, I mean, what I've really been working on the last five or seven years has been live performing. So it's been getting out of that straitjacket of state media or just mainstream media and 
getting back to clubs and theaters and small stages and live interaction and trying to find that cre- connection with the audience, right? Not through the, not through media, not through uh, go-betweens like a television station or even an internet company, but really just getting up on stage and dealing with audiences face to face and sort of finding that connection that I, you know, value so much that really that's what that's what makes my clock tick. So I've been focusing on live performing and on touring, and those are two things that have just become impossible in the pandemic. I mean, as the pandemic sort of started to to roll out late January, early February and March and everything, I was still traveling and the audience were getting smaller and smaller. And then finally, I I had one show in Miami that was canceled, but I thought, you know, it's February and I'd love to go to Miami anyway. So I I went to Miami in February and we were doing sort of this Wuhan Jiao, sort of this uh, fundraising to to fight the pandemic in in Wuhan at the time. And as that that all sort of fell apart, I I just... uh, you know, the the wheels just fell off the bus. And I, I, the first half of the pandemic, I think I really just decided to stop everything I was doing and just take some time off, not fight it, not immediately try to convert everything to the internet and start doing Douyin all of a sudden. Uh, although I've done a little bit of Douyin here and there for, for fun. I decided to just take some time off and read and rethink and retool. And, you know, at first we thought maybe we'll get back to performing in September, October. That was unrealistic. Even now, I think uh, we're recording this in early February. You know, I don't think I'll be back on stage by summer. In terms of international travel and everything, I don't, you know, maybe later this year, maybe we're looking at next year even. I'm taking some time off and some time back. I have been a little bit more active recently in sort of setting up a home studio and um, um, dusting the cobwebs off my YouTube channel and doing a little bit more Douyin but really trying to find, you know, rather than just sort of say now for something completely different and suddenly become a Douyin star, um, I still am focused on that Dashan show, the Dashan live, the one man show, the evening with Dashan kind of concept. Uh, how can I use the next six or eight months that I still won't be performing to be working on stuff that I can eventually take back to the stage. So I am, I mean, if people want to sort of follow up on, on what I've been doing lately, I have been, I have been polishing up my YouTube channel. Uh, I have been doing some Douyin and I have been doing these little videos and stuff. I've been doing a lot of studying too. I've been working a little bit with Chris Ray, actually, that I mentioned before on the history of comedy, working on some ideas, maybe try to do something a little bit more classic Chinese jokes. That's kind of an idea I'm working on now. So I, I do kind of see the next six or eight months still being working in the home studio but my goal would be to get back on the road and in live theaters and do that for another good decade or so before I uh, I don't know in my career you never really retire right I, I it's the kind of thing you can you can keep doing comedy is a young person's business and I don't I'm not you know I'll never again will have that sort of peak where I'm the new and sexy thing but I think I'm able to create a niche for Dashan that's a little bit that's a little bit different now you know the the 50 something Dashan and do something a little bit different than I have been doing in in past so it's very much sort of a year to sort of go back and retool and and work on some new ideas well Mark Rosewell Dashan it has been such an honor to have you on our show and thank you for answering all of my silly fanboy questions and uh Thank you to David for also contributing his behind-the-scenes observations of the Chunwan and the comedy era. We'll put the links to Dashan's website, YouTube channel, on our in, in our website. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks. It's been an honor and a pleasure. It's nice to see my old friend David again. And uh, Jeremiah, we've met a few times, but uh, look forward to following up with you guys when I eventually get back to Beijing. We That's look forward right. to that, too. Happy New Year, Mark. Happy New Year, Mark. Good